2: This is where we live from connecticut public radio i'm Catherine shen connecticut is known for a lot of things pizza mark twain long island sound just to name a few but connecticut is also known as the aerospace alley throughout history our state has made big contributions to aviation technology the future of air travel is a little uncertain and it takes a lot of manpower to get these big ideas off the ground Today, we're talking about the history and future of aviation in our state. We hear from some aviation enthusiasts whose love of all things plane is gonna make you soar. Helping us take flight today from the New England Air Museum in Windsor Locks here in Connecticut is Stephanie Abrams. She's the president and CEO of the New England Air Museum. And we also have Mike Thornton, who is a curator at the museum. Thanks, Stephanie, for being with us today.
0: Such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us.
2: And also lovely to have you on with us as well, Mike. Yes, hello. And for our listeners, you can also join the conversation 888-720-9677 or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So I want to start with you, Mike. You know, before we learn more about the museum, obviously have to ask both of you, how did you get interested in planes?
3: Yeah, I came to it kind of in a roundabout odd way. And then the planes are beautiful and they smell great and they're loud and fast. (laughs) But uh, in the 1990s, when I was a teenager, World War II was at its 50th anniversary. And a lot of the veterans began to really talk about the experiences of the air war. And these were young men who had grown up In the 1920s and 30s, being told that airplanes were going to play a dramatic role in the future affairs of the world. And here they were fighting the greatest uh, global air battles of all time. And the stories they told differed from the stories that I was reading in my history books. Mm. And I became so fascinated by the men and women who were behind the planes. And that's kind of stayed with me ever since.
2: Well, there's definitely something to be said about hearing the stories from the actual people versus reading it right i'm mean, a big fan of reading but there's nothing like a conversation which is going to i'm going to lead into stephanie here you know what's your what's your personal story with with aviation
0: i grew up with it my mm-hmm. father was in the air corps and he loved to fly he loved aviation and he told stories he wouldn't talk too much i think as is true with many people from that generation he sure. wouldn't talk too much ab- about being engaged in battle but Mm -hmm. he loved to fly and uh, his eyesight changed during the time he was in the air corps so he uh, got his amp mechanics license Mm -hmm. Uh, but after the war he was stationed in dayton where chuck yeager was and he just told me these stories about flying right seat in all of these experimental aircraft but he also told me stories about times when someone was doing touch and goes in some crazy aircraft and he'd say see ya, <laughs> because he was parachuting out. But anyway, that just started my love of it. And yes, I'm a, I'm a science nerd. There's a lot of science behind flight. But you know what? It is magic.
2: You know, that's something I hear a lot, is the word magic being described when it comes to flying in planes. I mean, it's kind of obvious, right? Um, what, m- so my, my grandfather-in-law, he was an Alaskan bush pilot. And so my connection is uh, is hearing his stories more from from family because he passed away a couple of years ago. But he flew a P thirty eight Lightning, wow. and and to me, I'm like that's just it's it's unfathomable that you're mapping Alaska like you literally created the map of Alaska by flying around it. Crazy. And my, my father in law was in was his co pilot taking photos. And so that's sort of my magical connection. And I love huh. that everyone sort of has that. So. Um, and, and Mike, you know, as we talk about magic and this mm-hmm. captivation, you know, you probably see a lot of people with that, that glint in their eye when they're in the museum, seeing these planes maybe for the first time yeah, or they've heard stories. Now, why does aviation matter? You know, why are so many people into this still?
3: And it has this aura about it. It's, it verges on a religion that it is, it's mystical and captivating. And there's this great call to the sky and it pans out in so many different ways. It's not just the thrill of actually achieving flight, but it's the uh, the personalities and that incredible experience of perspective that flight offers, and then all the science and engineering that goes into it. I mean, we're constantly, you know, and Connecticut is at the heart of that. We're constantly tri- striving to ch- achieve the sky. You know, we earn it for a little while, but then we have to reinvent and push back that next envelope. And that story is ongoing, and it will be ongoing until we reach the stars. I mean, really, that's that's the calling. Another
0: reason I, I think for me is aviation happened in the blink of an eye, mm-hmm. unlike anything else. I mean, in our museum, we have uh, an aircraft called a, a Charles Pusher. It was built by a 17-year-old um, from New Britain, from wow. Bur- I'm sorry, from Berlin, mm-hmm. Connecticut. And it's very primitive looking. You turn around and you look at the VS-44, it's a flying boat made by Sikorsky because mm. Igor Sikorsky intuited that there would not be runways long enough for aircraft. So he built one that takes off and lands in water. But you can see there, and that it was only, it was less than 20 years later. And then we're on the moon and now there's civilian space travel. So there's something magic in how quickly it happened. And mm. also it changed the way we live and it continues to change the way we live.
2: And both of you mentioned, you know, what a big role aviation has played and still playing here in Connecticut. So, Stephanie, I want to ask you, you know, Connecticut is actually known as the Aerospace Alley, as we mentioned earlier, a big industry here in the state. Can you talk about some of the state's history with planes and how our state has contributed to the aviation technology?
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think right now of Igor Sikorsky, who he was a visionary, truly born like during the birth of aviation. He was building aircraft there were no manuals back then. Right. There was no MIT to go to. Right. It was just brilliance and and again he he was a visionary. He claimed or he believed that they were divine visions. Mm. Um but it went on from there. And so between Pratt and Whitney, Sikorsky, Barnes Aerospace, and then the hundreds and hundreds of suppliers to these engine makers and and um you know the people who are uh, creating the aircraft as well.
2: And Sikorsky, yeah. did he also make the first commercial helicopter? Yes, yeah. he did. Yes, oh, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: It was fly work. Fly. He crashed a lot, and he as test, do. he tested his own aircraft right. until they finally decided. <clears throat> Maybe we shouldn't let Igor test all the aircraft because we need him. Right,
2: right. And I imagine those parts are very expensive to lose with every crash. Granted, you know, we should learn from failure. That's a good story to learn from. But maybe not so many expensive parts to to be a part of that. Um, and Mike, what's your perspective in terms of how aviation developed over time here in Connecticut?
3: Well, it's this incredible, um, it's also a story of economics. And mm-hmm. that, you know, a lot of people don't realize that New York and Long Island, had this huge uh, early aviation epicenter, but real estate is expensive. Right. And Connecticut being, a, you know, a, almost not quite on the cusp of a post-industrial uh, landscape, but there was a calling in the 1920s and 30s that there was available land. You need a lot of space and you need, uh, you know, factories and to, to build these incredible, large, you know, complicated machines and uh, uh, Rentschler with... Uh, with Pratt and Whitney and Sikorsky later on, and then of course the the massive facilities at Pratt, uh, excuse me, at Hamilton, um, you know, Connecticut had had all the right stuff <laughs> to become a, an aviation industrial
2: landscape. Well, and then speaking of machines, can you talk about some of the aircrafts and engines that are stored in the museum, and and why do you think it's important for people to see them in person?
3: Well, yeah, you, know, you know, it's um, one, it's a testament to this incredible the material product of the ingenuity and innovation and labor of, you know, so many, you know, New England residents, but it also charts this incredible technological. And again, you know, what, what Stephanie was saying earlier that this all happened in such a rapid amount of time. It's like, it was like every, you know, six months, something new, some new thing was being pushed and um, Pratt's evolution into, into jets, Hamilton's work for, you know, props that could rotate and, you know, change pitch and, There was always something that was going forward. You know, people like Amelia Earhart, all the, you know, the icons and the power brokers of the aviation scene were coming here and working with Connecticut engineers and designers to push the frontiers of aviation forward.
0: And they're still pushing forward because now there's a focus on autonomous flight, aircraft that truly fly themselves. And it's not that they're controlled by someone on the ground. I mean, with the AI algorithms, they fly themselves. So there's another step change going on Mm -hmm. in aviation right now. But one thing I, I also want to add, you're asking about what we have at the museum. In addition to the actual hardware, we also have the stories of the people behind the aircraft. I mean, one good example is the last major restoration was uh, a ten Warthog, mm-hmm. and you know, it's people call it um, a, a weapon on wings, mm-hmm. and has this Gatling um, t- firearm inside. But when we had the the ceremony for people to to dedicate it. We had a brigadier general talking about when he flew it, mm. why it flies slow and slow. And hearing the urgency of the troops on the ground, I never looked at the aircraft the same way again. So the stories about the people who designed and who tested, because you really have to have a lot of courage to test. Uh, it's just the stories are amazing.
2: Right. And... and the- uh, I'm glad you brought up the, the humans behind it after talking about AI because you know, no criticism, but there's something about a human being flying these machines. And and Mike, earlier you, you said something that I, I wasn't really thinking about, but you said the planes smell great.
3: Yes. So <laughs> can you describe
2: what's the scent? Because yeah. I, I I can smell the rust Weird. when I went through I was at Chino Airport a couple of years ago and I went through their junkyard. That blew my mind just to see the parts that you need to put together and turn it into a plane. But I got that. But I want to hear, what are you smelling?
3: This is, so, and I think this is one of these experiences where until you're around them, you don't realize it. But, you know, despite all the incredible progress of aviation, the sort of uh, future-facing work, at the end of the day, especially prior to the 1970s, planes were very analog (laughs) on the inside. You know, they smelled like the same scent as an old radio Or an electrical train set. I mean, you smelled the electrics, you smelled the oil, you smelled the the fuel. um, And, you know, when we sit. You know, we're lucky enough, as especially as a curator and my collections manager uh, Josh <laughs> Taylor, um, who comes from the Smithsonian, we're able to. You know, on occasion we get to pet the planes. <laughs> <laughs> this and, is true; uh, they do. <laughs> and um, when you when you sit in those cockpits and you see the metal and you see the luminescent dials and you hear the clunk of the the pedals and you're like, you know, you think of all the things they did, but just how hands on right. and handmade these machines were. And that's and again, that's an echo of the incredible labor that's behind them, the men and women on the line, the factory lines, you know, building these things. And so we have, we have twofold stories. We have, of course, all the stories of the planes and what they did, but we have the story of how they were made. And that's, that's exciting and rare.
2: Yeah, I just want to throw a, a quick note into the air to our listeners that uh, you can also join the conversation 888 720 9677. We have Don Morgan in East Hartford who just wants to share with us that if we want to know why pilots fly, have us look up and read online High Flight, which is a poem written by an airman. So that's High Flight written by an airman. Thank you so much, Don, for sharing that. A uh, quick comment with us, and um, Stephanie mentioned uh, AI earlier, and and we want to talk. We want to talk a little bit about the future of aviation. So, Mike, I want to ask you. You know, what many are working to make aviation more sustainable. So, can yes. you talk a little bit about that? You know, what does the future of aviation look
3: like? We are at an absolute watershed moment in aviation, and I think one of the great things that, if I could encourage anybody out there to, you know, when they visit the museum, to be thinking about, is that. You know, we think of aviation. It seems like histories kind of end at 1945, or they end with the landing on the moon. But this is this is not the case. It is always jump-starting this next great endeavor. And we are at this moment where we're environmental the concerns with fuel efficiency, the impact of aviation uh, on the the air and the atmosphere, uh, the just the raw economics of the fuel and the logistics to run you know airlines the designs that are being looked at with electrical with uh with VTOL for vertical uh, flight you know i we i don't think in the next you know aviation is always about speculating what the future looks like but planes are going to look very very different in the next 30 40 50 and 60 years and you know they might not even be recognizable in the way that we see you know traditional fixed wing or rotary you know they're fusions of all these old designs that are coming out the things we're looking at are so Incredible and mind-blowing. They're magical, and the the you know we will co- there will be a time where people will have these things in their
2: garage. That's amazing. And not too far future, I'm thinking, <laughs> by what you're describing, no. Stephanie, final thoughts.
0: Um, well, I wanted to tell the gentleman who called in that high flight is actually printed out in our break room at the museum. So thank you for mentioning Beautiful. that. That's perfect. But we are going to have a symposium on electric-powered vertical flight okay. uh, probably in March and April because, again, talk about magic. These aircraft look completely different than what we see now, and they're amazing. And sustainability really is the watchword at all of the aviation companies now.
2: You've been listening to Stephanie Abrams, who's the president and CEO of the New England Air Museum. Stephanie, thank you so much for being with us today.
0: Such a pleasure. Thank you for having us.
2: And Mike Thornton, who's a curator at the New England Air Museum, will be staying with us. And coming up next, it's one thing to see these planes, and it is another to fly them. We'll hear from a D-Day squadron in Oxford in Connecticut. And aviation enthusiasts, we want to hear from you. Join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
4: So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO-on-the-go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery.
1: For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health.
2: This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. The New England Air Museum houses some unbelievable aircrafts. Many are no longer in use, but can you imagine actually flying in one of these vintage planes? I think it'd be pretty cool. But what's also cool is that Bob Creeter has landed in our studios today. He's a crew chief and docent on the Placid Lassie aircraft. Bob, welcome to where we live today. Thank you. And also with us is Mike Throton, who's the curator of the New England Air Museum. And just a quick reminder for our listeners that you can also join the conversation if you like, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So Bob, want to start off. Can you tell us what is Placid Lassie? And can you describe what your work looks like with it?
4: Placid Lassie is a DC-3 or C-47. She was built in 1943. It was a uh, transport plane that uh, was used to haul cargo and um, drop parachuters. Uh, she also towed gliders. On um, uh, D-Day, uh, she her first mission was bringing over gliders. I think the first one was a horse, a British glider that held uh, 28 paratroopers. And then the next one was, a, I think, a CG-4A, CJ-4A, um, that only held 13 paratroopers. Uh, gl- uh, Paratroopers or infantrymen. Um, then she went back and hauled over um, more paratroopers to drop in. So um, the C-47, this one has is, is been restored, worked on, uh, has a very, very interesting life. Um, it was um, um, a warbird to 45 and then at the end of the war she was Retired to Georgia, and then from there, she was sent to the Pacific uh, West Coast. Uh, they um, used it as a uh, transport plane for, oh, God, 20 years, and then she came and became a, a cargo dog. And then uh, some guy had it in Georgia, and uh, finally, uh, as a cargo plane, one of the engines failed, and he just didn't have the money to fix it. right. So uh, it was James Lyle and Eric Zipkin uh, of Tunis and um, The director um, picked up the plane, but it really wasn't Tunisian then. Um, And they brought it over 2014 to England. Uh, They did a a D-Day smaller version, um, and over there, some old British veteran saw the plane and said, "That's not Yukon Jack Deck. That's Placid Lassie. I know this plane, and your radio operator is still alive." and they got back to the states they found him and uh uh gave him a ride in the plane i guess and shortly after he passed away but uh, they named the foundation after him he was the last survivor I think
2: it's amazing hearing the history of of where these planes have been, where they've gone through, and where they are now, and the fact that we're having these conversations, I think it's pretty mind-blowing. Mike earlier described, you know, what the inside of a plane smell like. So can you talk about what it's like being inside these planes, Bob?
4: Well, um, Lassie has no padding or insulation in the walls. That's Um, good. (laughs) We have some commercial seats to bring the crews around. And it is noisy in there. If you have uh, the headset like uh, for a weed whacker, we'll wear those in the plane. Or if you have your um, flight headset on that's tuned into the the communication system in the plane, uh, you don't really hear it. It's just a background drone. But you take those off and you just hear the roar of those two Pratt & Whitney engines uh, churning along and it's... um, it, you know you're you're there. And Lassie is a very gentle plane in the air. She seems to have no bad tendencies. Um, but as far as the smell goes, your smell is on the outside. Mm. When you start the thing up, well, there's a lot of smoke. Um, but um, it's uh, a round motor trait.
2: Well, how do people react when they see when they see these planes being flown? I feel like you know, we are—we just had a very short conversation about planes, but it seems like a lot of people have very emotional connections to to aircraft.
4: Yes, they do. Um, you can see the crew, and they refer to her, mm-hmm. you know, as a living, breathing thing. Um, they take excellent care of her. Um, uh, there's a um, I don't know, just a mystique about the whole plane. And people come walking in to shows when you land. We don't even get the door open, and they're standing there waiting to get in it.
3: You know, (laughs) so. um,
2: Well, Mike, I I, I see you nodding and smiling. I think you're about to parachute out of the studio with your excitement. (laughs) You know, do you agree?
3: (laughs) Oh, I do. You know, when you see them, it history comes alive. You, for a moment there, you can step back in time. And it brings back, you know, D-Day or then the glory days of the 1930s. And those sounds and that feel and seeing those things pass overhead, um, you know, that's exactly as it was. And it's just grand.
2: And, and Bob, you know, these, these planes are expensive to fly and, and maintain, I imagine. So can you talk about why is it important to still fly these planes and for people to see them in the air?
4: Well, it's important that they carry on what people did, this servicemen, what they did with this plane back in the 40s during World War II, and um, you look at the technology in the plane as it is and it's amazing what they accomplished. Um, When we're at the show and the old timers come up and they start talking what they did with the plane, um, it's absolutely amazing. Today, um, you know, you climb into an airliner and you're up at 42,000 feet and, you know, no time you're at your destination. Lassie chugging along at, you know 146 miles an hour and burning 100 gallons an hour of fuel, it's different, mm-hmm. you know. And um, uh, they um, they they're listening to her, you know. They f- have the feel for her. It's um, again, it's a living, breathing thing.
2: Well, and Bob, you also do a lot of tours with veterans and also their families. And I know you you shared with our producer that you did a, a tour with the Pilot's Daughter. Can you tell us that story?
4: Um, the one where the um, we we're at a show and people are lined up. God, there's lines so long, and it could be a ninety eight degree day, and they'll stand in line to get in there. And this one young lady was, I I, I would probably put her in her, you know, she's forties, she's crying, mm-hmm. and she had said her father just passed away, and he flew those. So we talked to the people inside the plane. There's usually a pilot or somebody up front that'll describe things. And she um, went up there. They let her sit in the seat. And, you know, she came out. She was crying just as much as she went in, but she was very grateful being allowed to see um, what her father had done. Other people, um, one old lady came and she said, My husband flew these over the hump. Mm -hmm. That was from India to Burma. You know through the mountains um it's incredible to to think that this plane did that and um
2: uh, you know what what goes through your mind when when you realize that you're what you're witnessing what you're witnessing because you know, i i've done i've done some stories with aviation and, and with with troops flying out with c-17s knowing that they're bringing cargo to our troops and i've been in a in a piper j j3 a small cup plane flying over California and that that was an amazing experience, you know, getting a birds-eye view of where you live. Um, but those are kind of quote quote fun experience for me, but but you're seeing sort of a history coming to present, I think. You know, what what goes through your mind when when you realize you know, what you're what you're seeing here?
4: The first thing goes through my mind is gratitude to be even mm-hmm. part of it. Um, And when we do these parachute jumps there's a lot of veterans one of them that just recently jumped with us has over 2,000 jumps and these aren't like today if you went to a local parachute school you'd be jumping at 12 or 15,000 feet these guys went out at about 1,200 feet Um, and it's a line of sight they have a jump master laying on the floor lining up the plane with the the drop zone and um, just watching this, these guys who stand up, they hook their static cord up to this cable along the roof, and when the uh, command comes to go, they just step out and off they go. Um, some of them carrying 130 pounds of extra equipment with them, um, and it just makes you grateful for what they did, and some of them flew into some very hostile environments. Um, so it's, um, it's just so enlightening to, to be part of it. And every mission is that we get something new.
2: Well, and I know you work with Placid Lassie, of course, but do you have other crafts that that you love and you love talking about and sharing?
4: Well, um, this young man who's one of the uh, pilots, uh, PICs for Lassie, just bought a Stearman, and um, I'm hoping to get over and help him finish, put it together um, together get to fly that I love the, the open cockpit I think when you talk about smell and experiencing something you 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 got to experience open cockpit perhaps in the J3 you flew they had the doors open on the side and you got it was loud yeah
3: so yeah, I was going to say that that's one of the incredible features of our museum is that unlike, you know, instead of having these things just purely static, that we do mm-hmm. allow visitors into the cockpits of a number of our aircraft and offer special open, open cockpit days. And it's it's been a staple of the New England Air Museum for years, but it's one of our great, great features.
2: Well, I want to ask both of you this question, and we've got to go to a break in about two minutes here. But, Bob, you know, what, having this conversation about history, clearly we are just scraping the surface today. You know, what do you hope listeners get out from this conversation?
4: Well, I hope they get there unknown that groundbound aviators can experience stuff. Hmm. Tunisian is always looking for volunteers. Um, Lassie's kept over in Poughkeepsie uh, in a hangar. And um, the volunteers, you don't have to be an expert on aircraft. If you've got time and you know, hands, they have lots of things to do. They're also in the midst of uh, restoring a PBY Catalina, hmm. a big flying boat. Um, so it's um, yeah, what we hope is that more people will come to help out. Um, there's always there's always room for more hands, as they say, many hands make the the load light. and it is true., uh, last hangar day, we had over forty people there, wow. and one of them's a eighty year old woman
2: all right. so basically never too many cooks uh, in, in a plane, Mike, yeah. what about you? Same question. What do you hope our listeners get out from this?
3: Oh, just the the wonder, the wonder that there are so many stories and ways to intersect with the past, present, and future with aviation. That it's it's grand and it's it's in it's a welcoming and fun scene. Uh, so come come see the museum. Come see these things that fly at air shows, uh, and and understand that there's a connection between you know you see your kids playing with Legos. Yeah. <laughs> this can lead to the next the next great. Uh, groundbreaking discovery.
2: So we're going to end with a very quick question. I wonder if one of you can answer this. We have a question from Sid from Facebook. He asks, do we know where the C-47 was built? Was it probably built largely by women workers?
4: That I can't answer um, uh, where it was built. I know it was built in 1943 by the Douglas uh, Aircraft Corporation. Um, so whether it was in California, um, I'm not sure, but I could find that out and well, Sid, thank answer. you for
2: that question. We'll find Bob is going to find that out for you. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Bob Creeter, who's a crew chief and docent on the Placid Lassie aircraft. And you've also been listening to Mike Thornton, who's the curator of the New England Air Museum. Thank you both for being on the show today. Oh,
4: happy to be here.
2: And coming up next, aviation enthusiasts from all four corners of Connecticut can put on their pilot caps and fly model aircrafts. We'll learn more about that after the break. But first up, here are two of my colleagues to tell you how you can support our work and flight at Connecticut Public. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. If flying in a vintage plane is not your speed, there are more ways you can tap into your inner pilot. There are many model plane clubs here in all four corners of Connecticut. And joining us now is Edward Deming. He's the president of RC Prop Busters of Salem here in Connecticut. Thanks, Ed, for being with us today.
1: Thanks for having me, uh, Catherine.
2: And for our listeners, you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Ed, you've been listening to us talk about vintage planes, but your thing is model planes. So can you talk about how did you get interested in that in the first place?
1: Sure. Uh, so the, uh, as, as Bob mentioned previously, uh, there, there's a lot of avi- aviation interest uh, across, across the country, particularly in Connecticut. But uh, a, lot of, a lot of people, kids grew up watching planes, you know, Bradley Airfo- Airport uh, and other areas, it's very easy to get excited about, about aircraft. And that's how it started with myself, with building small models with my dad back in the 60s, and then getting into the early uh, radio control stuff with, uh, it was actually Central Connecticut Radio Control Club out of Farmington way back when. And uh, I have done it off and on ever since. Um, but it, and it, leads you, it leads you into kind of a technical interest, and it can be as complicated as you want, either uh, ready-to-fly type stuff or building things. Early In the early days, you had to build all your own things and sometimes even build your own radios. It's a lot easier now, and the equipment's much better.
2: What I was going to ask, you know, how do people get started in flying models? Because I think it's a, it's a little bit more complicated than than people think, maybe even flying the tiny drones that you can get off the Internet
1: yeah, so, the, so <laughs> exactly. Uh, there are lots of ways to uh, that you can get into it, but the best way is to is to join a club, and particularly a club that's uh, that's uh, affiliated with the Academy of Model Aeronautics. Uh, that's uh, that's the governing body for for model airplane uh, activities and is FAA approved as a, a community based uh, uh, organization for training and with a, a uh, set safety procedures and approved safety procedures. So a club like RC Prop Busters or any one of the other 15 or 16 clubs in Connecticut is a good way to get started. Um, and But Academy of Model Aeronautics is the key thing. All of the clubs have, uh, have usually a dedicated uh, number of instructors, and we all welcome, uh, I think universally, the clubs welcome visitors to the flying fields and are welcome people are welcome to watch the flying and if they have an interest very often there'll be an instructor there that will have a trainer type plane with a uh, what we call a buddy box and they can can give you basic instruction and take you up and let you try flying without the danger of crashing because they can take control back very very quickly
2: and and these are these are handheld controls they're handheld, and and the planes are in the line of sight type of thing yes
1: yes you have to yeah you have to fly what we call visual line of sight so you're flying within Usually within uh, uh, several hundred yards or a thousand yards from from your point where you're where you're flying, uh, we have a uh, there's a a limitation an altitude limitation of 400 feet above ground level unless you have a uh, a waiver an FAA waiver, um, but it's all visual line of sight and that's part of the excitement. It's kind of like doing a uh, a video game but in real life. And in fact, there there are really good uh, simulators and we often suggest that people get. A, and they're pretty inexpensive, a hundred dollars, around a hundred dollars or less, depending on whether you get a controller with it. And that's a good way to learn uh, without costing a lot of money for crashes. Hitting the reset button is a lot easier than rebuild.
2: Right, and yeah. and because there's, it sounds like there's so much uh, into it. You got training, you got FAA, you've got guidelines, you got instructors. So what should our listeners know about safety? You know, are there places that they should not fly? They should fly. You know, how does that work?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So. So the uh, the safest place to fly is at, uh, at AMA-sponsored club fields because they're specifically set up so they're away from buildings, they're away from, from roads. Uh, uh, you need a, a fairly wide space for even the mid-size to, mid-size to large planes. Smaller ones, they, they, they're sometimes called park flyers, uh, but uh, that's not always a great idea. You're always better off flying at an established field where there is also a, an established flight line, pit stations, and flying stations. so And with some control, crowd control, and also for other pilots so that you're flying in a safe manner and uh, everybody knows that they're controlling their own plane mm-hmm. and that there's not too many people up there so you don't have a traffic jam or anything like that.
2: Kind of an uh, an on air dog park. It seems like that's it,
1: it, it <laughs> is a little bit exactly. It's it's uh, it's actually a big social connection for a lot of people. Well, I was I
2: wanted yeah. to ask you about that too. You know, there's there's a huge model plane community here here in Connecticut. Can you talk about what that's been like?
1: Sure, there is. So I uh, so in I'll, I'll talk about um, the di- uh, district one in the AMA right now, which is all New England. Uh, in in New England, there are uh, about twelve thousand pilots uh, uh, and uh, 110, 110 clubs, and uh, and that's that's a, a pretty good base across the whole country. There's a hundred and seventy thousand uh, uh, pilots and uh, almost twenty five hundred clubs, so it's a pretty big uh, pretty big organization, and it's. Uh, as like Bob had mentioned when we were talking before we got started here, it's it's it really is a community. As soon as you start talking with people and just a, there's a shared love of, of aviation and aircraft, uh, it's, you, you, it's, they're instant friends.
2: Well, we have Bob Kreider, who's the crew chief and docent of the Placid Lassie aircraft, who is still with us. Bob, you're also involved in the model plane community. Talk about your experience.
4: Uh, yeah, I'm a member of Quaker Farms RC Club in Oxford, Connecticut. And I'm also a member of the Connecticut Silent Flyers in Newtown, Connecticut, and um, it's been a, a rewarding experience to meet all those people that are in there. They all work together to keep the the field safe and uh, in good condition to fly. Um, it's it, it's absolutely been one of the, the best things I could you know get involved with. You know, um, shy of buying a two million dollar plane, you can buy one for.
1: A few hundred dollars in experience. Flying. That seems a
2: bit more reasonable. right? Yeah.
1: We're, we're the earthbound aviators. Yeah. yeah
2: I, I love that. It kind of changes how I view armchair traveling. Yeah. Earthbound aviators. Groundbound oh, aviators. Okay. I yeah, love that. Yeah. I love that. And and earlier we talked about, too, you know, the magic of aviation and, and keeping the curiosity sort of um, alive through museums and air shows mm-hmm. and whatnot. What about having kids being more involved in, say, you know, STEM classes? Yeah. So,
1: that's a that's a huge thing, Catherine. In fact, uh, our particular club, RC Prop Busters, we do a, a, a we call it a neighborhood fun fly. But any of the public are in, welcome to come in, and we'll set up uh, set up uh, six to eight uh, uh, stations with uh, only four flying at any given time. With six to eight stations with people with uh, what we call. Um, buddy boxes and will we'll, uh, give people a chance to fly and, and uh, children in particular. We have, uh, we have several several kids that are in the club, active members right now, and they started out through one of these type of things. Uh, and, uh, and it's it's the, the, the neighborhood community they, they really enjoy it. And it also gets the kids involved in thinking about technical things. Like that's how I got interested in engineering. I, I attribute uh, radio control flying, and model building uh, directly for me wanting to become and becoming an engineer. Uh, and, that's, and there's the Academy of Model Aeronautics also has a, a large outreach program with a number of things, including scholarships. They've put out over $1.2 million in scholarships to support STEM education. And, uh, and th- even throughout, throughout New England and throughout the whole country, there are programs, a lot of the clubs have outreach programs, with the local community and also with organizations, organizations like Scouts, um, uh, the uh, uh, Scouts, and other educational organizations, yeah.
2: I love that because the reason why I was in a, uh, a Piper J3 cup plane a couple of years ago was it was part of a program for kids to to co-pilot and, 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 and fly around. And they do have kids that come out from that and, and say, oh, my God, I want to be an engineer. I want to be a pilot. So, Bob, you know, you're in a very specific place in terms of aviation, but are you seeing kids getting excited and, and wanting to be a part of that community?
4: Oh, yeah. Uh, we have um, a lot of kids, especially, come out um, that are grandkids of some of the the pilots that we have and they teach their their grandsons and granddaughters to fly and um there's and it doesn't make any difference where you are a lot of them go on to um aviation schools Mm -hmm. they they, um like that kid we were talking about before uh, garrett he he went to Embry riddle on a um unmanned pilot program that was going to be his major and now it's it's taken him to new heights um he was written up in ama magazine for his accomplishments um
2: so more so more than just a model plane going into real life
4: yes
1: it, absolutely it, it absolutely. is yeah that's
4: it, yeah i mean it makes you think uh it 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 stretches the kids imagination uh some of them are way ahead of their time
2: well, well and it, on that note does it keep you curious and excited and and, and wanting to continue to do this i mean it, obviously you're enthusiastic it, it, already it, it,
1: it absolutely does and uh, so we have we have a, a number of retired guys in our in our club and throughout the the um aero modeling community but i kind of joke around sometimes that that it, it does take a fair amount of coordination and you're always learning it's a lot of hand-eye coordination and, uh, we, you know, we joke that uh, as you to try to keep your mind fresh, fl- try flying a radio control aircraft, a, a plane or a helicopter. It, it's a lot better than, you know, brushing your teeth with your opposite hand, which is, you know. So it's, it's really that, that hand-eye coordination really keeps your interest up and keeps you uh, mentally sharp.
2: I mean, you're selling that over crosswords for me right now.
1: So. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, it's, and it's it really is a lot of fun because it's a technical thing. Right. It's so cool to see the kids get so excited uh, when they come and get a chance to try flying for the first time. And you know they have they have the ability to learn so quickly. They uh, it, literally within uh, uh, probably maybe a couple of dozen flights, they're they're able to fly with more skill than some of the people that start later in life that will take them years to get.
2: Well, uh, uh, we've got about 30 seconds left, yeah. but I asked Bob this question earlier I want to ask you, uh, Ed, is uh, what do you hope our listeners come out from this conversation, get, get from this conversation? 30 seconds.
1: Oh, okay. So that uh, that the aeromodeling is a great way to uh, to, to learn some, some technical skills and have a lot of fun. And also if people are interested, uh, look up the uh, the Academy of Model Aeronautics, Google it, and then there's a local club finder, including ours, RC Prop Busters in Salem, Connecticut, and you can that's it, the way to get started.
2: Well, you just landed that plane perfectly. You've been listening to Edward Deming, who's the president of RC Prop Busters of Salem, Connecticut. Thank you so much for being here today.
1: Thank you, Catherine.
2: And Bob Kreider, who's a crew chief and docent on the Placid Lassie aircraft. Thank you. Thank oh, you my pleasure. Here. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Test Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thanks so much for listening and flying with us today.